the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back and happy May 27th, 2021. Robin Absarian, a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, opines her latest thus, quote, What is so terrifying to Republicans about the reassessment of American history known as critical race theory? Once an obscure academic theory, it has now taken its place alongside face masks and cancel culture as the bugaboo of conservatives who would rather do anything other than fix our broken immigration system, crumbling infrastructure, and inadequate health care. Pioneered in the 1970s and 80s and refined as the decades have passed, the theory posits that racial inequality is a baked-in feature of American institutions, which benefits what author Isabel Wilkinson calls, Wilkerson calls the dominant caste, i.e. white people. Republicans, most of them white, are outraged at the suggestion close quote at the same time we read in the guardian from from a legal scholar and nation magazine columnist quote at this vexed moment it is a truism that americans of different races ethnicities and religions are tense wary of one another but it is white fear of blackness that has the longest history that is the most intractable and that still underwrites majoritarian tendencies to forgive even lethal police misconduct and to rationalize punitive forms of segregation in housing, education, and employment, close quote. Where to begin? Let's begin calling things by their proper name. In this case, lies. Toxic lies. Marxist lies. Deliberate lies to serve cause of inhuman destruction in the name of progressivism. Let's sort it out seriatim. First, when the author writes, critical race theory has now taken its place alongside face masks and cancel culture as the bugaboo of conservatives. Well, if one wanted to make face masks political, there are few better ways to do so than say they are a bugaboo of conservatives. Or, as the president put it, your patriotic duty to wear in, by the way, the same speech he was explaining what we could and could not do on the 4th of July. Cancel culture? A bugaboo? Quick, name me a liberal who has been canceled for writing or saying something liberals approve of, including comparing Republicans and Americans to Adolf Hitler. You cannot. I can spend the rest of the time allotted to this monologue, however, detailing cancellations of conservatives. You can wish it away or try to hide it, but as in Richard III, say I slew them not. And the queen replied, then say they were not slain, but dead they are. Say there is no border crisis, but crisis there is. Say there is no cancellation of conservatives, but cancel culture there is. She says immigration, health care, and infrastructure. Those are big topics. 
but not relevant here at all. Thus, just an example of bad or poor writing. A high school or eighth grade composition teacher would scratch those words out of this essay and write relevance, question mark, in the margin, if not just the word irrelevant. Anyway, happy to come back to those, but let's stick to the original thesis of hers. What is so terrifying to Republicans about the reassessment of American history and institutions seen through the lens which benefits what author Isabel Wilkerson calls the dominant caste, i.e. white people, close quote. Her words, dominant caste, her words, white people. Our Los Angeles Times columnist says Republicans, most of them white, are outraged at looking into and studying this. Imagine that. Outrage at the notion that there is a racial caste system in America and that we're supposed to accept it. Before I say anything more about castes, let me just ask what side of the divide supports integration and what side antediluvian segregation. For one of the first facts or identifiers of a caste system by any acclaim is the essence of and importance of segregation, including intermarriage. So perhaps that's the strategy we see developing on the left. Take a toxic or previously toxic word, in this case caste system, ignore its true elements, in this case case segregation, because they truly are your own and not your opponents, and ascribe that word caste to your opponents. In other words, scrub the meaning of it where it applies to you, and just use its toxic reputation against your opponents, who it doesn't apply to because you were the first to use it. We've been here before. We've seen this with autocrat. We've seen this with fascism. We've seen this with tyrant. We've seen this with comparisons to National Socialism's leaders, all invoked against conservatives, while the target is devoid of the characteristics, conservatives devoid of the characteristics the left, the proponents of such extreme language, ascribe to the target, us, we conservatives. Meanwhile, the traits of the emblem are at great home and comfort in the movements that invoke them against their opponents and enemies. If you want to think about caste systems and what defends them, it's actually the left trying to reinstitute them in America, not conservatives. And by the way, just by the way, when did it of a sudden become okay to declaim against and criticize the caste system, especially of India, which our author above invokes? I'm old enough to remember when we used to speak of universal rights and how the caste system was a violation of them. We were told that was racism against Indians or ethnocentrism or cultural superiority by Americans. We had no right to tell India that their behavior and their cultural experiences and rules and mores were enlightened or unenlightened. The rule has changed, I guess, when cultural appropriation and denigration can be elevated, at least to the level where it can be used to cudgel conservatives. Ironically, conservatives who hate and have long condemned the caste system, ironically, conservatives who have condemned it for decades only to be told that was culturally superior 
and ethnocentric. We were ahead of the game in condemning caste systems, and we were criticized when we did so. But none of this is really the most important thing here. The most important thing here is that, hell yeah, we Republicans and conservatives have a problem with teaching there is a caste in America, much less a white one or dominant one. Why do we have a problem with that? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because those who told us there was a caste system were slaveholders and leaders of the Confederacy who thought our founding was meant to expand slavery while we conservatives and Republicans opposed that thinking in history all our lives? Oh, maybe because those who think there is or was a caste system in America were the leaders of the post-Civil War Jim Crow and segregation system. Anyone remember learning about a famous Supreme Court case called Plessy versus Ferguson? Ring a bell, Bill. Do you remember that? Plessy, it rings a bell to almost everyone who went through eighth grade or high school before 1998. It's probably one of three or four Supreme Court cases taught as early as the eighth grade. It's the case you may recall now that came to stand for and support the notion of separate but equal. You've heard the phrase separate but equal. It comes from Plessy versus Ferguson. It's a phrase of hypocrisy. It's a non sequitur of policy meant to enforce Jim Crow and segregation. It's a case that was uniformly taught as an embarrassment and departure from our history, ethics, and morality. Theoretically, Plessy versus Ferguson was finally overruled in Brown versus Board of Education, which once upon a time, up until yesterday, really, was uniformly taught as the beginning of the new civil rights movement and lauded as a major step on the road to equal rights consonant with our Constitution and Declaration and Founders' best wishes. Today, it's all quite cattywampus. In Plessy versus Ferguson, for example, we were taught the odiousness of racial categorization as the principle for determining rights and privileges, like riding in the same train as a fellow American or the same train car as a fellow American, but one whose race was different. And what we were not taught much at the time was that there was actually a dissent in the Plessy case. Perhaps dissents are too difficult for 8th and 12th graders to understand? I don't think so, but they rarely taught that there was a dissent in the Plessy case, and the dissent by, was written by one Justice John Marshall Harlan, and it is there that he wrote this quote. The white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country, and perhaps it is in prestige, achievement, education, wealth, and power. So I doubt not it will continue to be for all time if it remains true to its great heritage and holds fast to the principles of constitutional liberty. But in view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or his color when his civil rights as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land are involved. It is therefore to be regretted that this high tribunal, the final expositor of the fundamental law of the land, has reached the conclusion that it is competent for a state to regulate the enjoyment 
by citizens of their civil rights solely upon the basis of race, close quote. That, Miss Absarian, is why we hate the idea of teaching there is a dominant race and caste in America and that it is white. We thought that notion died in the Declaration of Independence. If it did not, we thought it certainly would have after the Civil War. If it did not, then certainly with the ringing and beautiful words of John Marshall Harlan I just quoted, and that brought us to Brown versus Board of Education because there was not a reckoning to Harlan's position just yet. And thus, in Brown versus Board of Education, Thurgood Marshall, arguing the case for the NAACP, wrote in his brief this, quote, distinctions by race are so evil, so arbitrary and invidious that a state bound to defend the equal protection of the laws must not invoke them in any public sphere, close quote. And while that case struck down segregation in education as unconstitutional, it did not explicitly and specifically adopt John Harlan's words. Too bad. As Harry Jaffa has written, there is not now and never has been any such difference between one human being and another human being or whatever, of whatever race or color such that one is by nature the ruler of the other, as any human being is by nature the ruler of a dog or a horse. For this reason, legitimate political authority can arise only by the consent of the governed, and consent can never be given for any reason other than the equal protection of the rights of the governed. Hence, equal protection is the foundation of all constitutionalism, even apart from its specific inclusion in the Constitution itself. For more reasons than one, John Harlan's dissenting opinion ought to have been the opinion of the court in 1896. Even more, it ought to have been the opinion of the court in Brown versus Board of Education. But if you want to know why we don't buy into a caste system here in America, it's because we never have, and once upon a time, those who did so as a lament and lost cause effort to prove the Confederacy right. No thanks, Miss Absarian. All stick with Lincoln. As our legal scholar at the nation wrote, quote, at this vexed moment, it is true that Americans of all different races, ethnicities, and religions are tense, wary of one another, but it is white fear of blackness that has the longest history, that is most intractable, and that still underwrites the majorian tendencies to forgive even lethal police misconduct and to rationalize punitive forms of segregation in housing, education, and employment. Close quote. Such fear, I assume, as was represented in an African-American candidate for president becoming president twice, with a higher percentage of the white vote than any other white Democrat in recent memory, or for that matter, a higher percentage of the white vote than the beau ideal of the white Anglo-Protestant George H.W. Bush. And of course, as if the vexing moment we are in was a result of conservatives or Republicans elevating issues of race as badges of competence and incompetence, decent and indecent. But the idea that white fear of black Aggression explains lethal police conduct is the most vile of lies, so vile that it is the exact, not figurative, but exact opposite of the truth. 
there would be no stories, none, of lethal shootings by police, of unarmed black men, if black men were not taught that the police are their natural and, for, and permanent enemy and routinely misdescribed and slandered as animals and worse. If, in other words, there were no violent resistances to arrest, there would be more people alive, especially the ones whose memories were invoked to sell a Marxist ideology that wants to exacerbate the problems of poverty and violence and family structure in the name of bringing heaven on earth in a Marxist paradise. But let's be clear, it's not unfounded white fear of black that is the cause of anything here in America. But thanks to you, left, there is unfounded black fear of whites. So you've perpetrated a double lie. You want to go ahead and resurrect and reinstitute Plessy versus Ferguson? That's a you thing. I'll stick with the notion that it was a horrible, envenomed decision. So when equality and safety are threatened, and threatened not by democratic but Marxist alternatives, and you want to turn not only the clock but the moral dictionary upside down on civil rights, again, sorry for the French. But hell yeah, we're terrified. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. I was interested in the way this is being uh, <clears throat> excuse me, spun and pitched, given the headlines. Uh, we, we don't have the full text of the speech, and it's the kind of speech that, depending uh, on uh, what your politics are, will either be important or unimportant. It's a speech tonight that former Speaker of the House and Vice Presidential Candidate Paul Ryan We'll be giving at the Reagan Library, and uh, the headlines are that uh, Paul Ryan is expected to knock Donald Trump at the speech. Other headlines, with a few excerpts having been released, uh, are saying that uh, Paul Ryan is going to tell conservatives that they need to let the gas up a little bit on the culture wars. That is to say, not fight the culture wars as um, – Tempting as that may be, and to resurrect some form of spirited concept of Reaganism. That's what the headlines and excerpts reveal. I have no idea, which to me is nothing new. I mean, if you were to ask me, is that something you would hear Paul Ryan saying? I'd say yes. Moreover, um, I I never expected Paul Ryan to be a Trump supporter. He didn't tell us he voted for Trump. When asked, he's declined to answer, which is an answer. Uh, so, you know, not much help here. But what do you guys think? Is there – how much of a difference between Reagan and Trump is there? This is always interesting to me. I'd love to know your thoughts. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Six zero two five zero eight. 0960. That's ideation for you. We were working. They have a they have a button here called a cough button. So if a host coughs, you push it and it hopefully helps the audience not be blasted with the host's cough. And we were just testing them 
I mean, it's standard equipment, but we hadn't tested it in a while. We were testing them. I wasn't coughing. And we come back and I cough. Didn't use the button. Ideation. First you say it, then you do it. Paul Ryan speaking tonight at the Reagan Library. Um, if he does indeed critique uh, Donald Trump the way the media is speculating that Paul Ryan plans to, it will make some headlines, as it already has. That's the tell here. The idea that this is a story. Former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, who loomed larger in American life? Here's an exa- Here's a question for you. Who looms larger in American life or American public life? Paul Ryan or Newt Gingrich, both speakers of the House. Give me a break, right? Not even close. Um, When's the last time you ever saw a story of Newt Gingrich giving a speech at the Reagan Library? You know he's done it probably 20 or more times. It's never been a story. Why is it a story that Paul Ryan is giving a speech? It's not that he even gave it yet. That's pretty good press. When you're getting press about something you haven't said, or haven't done. That's pretty good. That's telling you something. That's telling you something. So they're already the media, which had no use for Paul Ryan when he was carrying uh, the Republican Party's water under Bush and Romney and McCain, excuse me. They had no problem condemning him back when the Republican Party was, at least in their view, more moderate. I have my, you know, my thesis, I don't think it's more or less moderate. I think it's always been about the same with a few marginal differences here and there. But in any event, if, if you forget what the press thought of Paul Ryan once upon a time when he was in power, uh, I'll just give you one of many headlines I could. How's this op-ed headline at the New York Times uh, April 12th, uh, three years ago, the Paul Ryan story from flim-flam to fascism? Paul Krugman, New York Times. Do I need to do more? This is what they used to think of Paul Ryan, from flim-flam to fascism. Of course, you'll recall, too, Joe Biden's vice presidential speech where he said they'll want to put you all back in chains to the black audience. It was about the Romney-Ryan ticket. He says the word they. He meant Romney-Ryan. That's what he was. his speech was about, the Romney-Ryan ticket. That's what they used to think. Now, because what's the rule? If you're a Republican out of power who disagrees with the Republicans in power, you are a saint to the liberals who will use you as a cudgel to beat up the Republicans in power. Regardless, It's a long rule. Regardless of how people felt and thought and spoke of you when you were in power. But that is the rule. I know it's long and it has to be long because it's anfractious reasoning, because it's not logical reasoning. It's partisan reasoning. It's not logical. It's partisan. Paul Ryan's views haven't really changed. I think he's mistaken not to have endorsed Donald Trump, but his views haven't really changed. It's just that he's not in power or a threat to the left anymore. So much so, one might say he's even been co-opted by them when he refuses to endorse or support his party's nominee for president. By the way, all these Republicans like that who don't support their party's nominee for president because they didn't get their way or they don't like the nominee or because they have their own precious views of propriety versus country. You know, for all those Republicans like that, Paul Ryan's, Jeff Flake's, others, 
it's 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 a little interesting to hear that it's Donald Trump who stirs up divisions in the Republican Party. It's a little interesting to hear that it's Donald Trump who demands fealty and loyalty from other Republicans. These are the guys. This is the cabal starting, I don't know, before the Lincoln Project, to be sure, but certainly becoming part and parcel of it and outwards and other projects of Bill Crystal's to these, of your Paul Ryan's and Mitt Romney's. And they're the ones. Say, they're the ones saying we will. We we will be proud Republicans. We just won't support our nominee. You know what? That's contempt for. It's contempt for the people who vote, not for contempt of the nominee. It kind of withdraws you from everything I was speaking about in my monologue from a regime based on consent, when you cannot live with the decisions of your fellow citizens. Or fellow partisans. That's a pretty sad thing. But Reagan to Trump, are the differences that great? You tell me. 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. 602-508-0960. Uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll leave the Paul Ryan speech uh, to the Reagan uh, Library tonight alone for now, uh, except to say that it will be interesting to see how uh, much the press forgot how much they hated Paul Ryan, if his uh, expected remarks are indeed to be critical of Donald Trump. I, <clears throat> I, I, there's two weird things in the conservative movement when it comes to things Trump and Reagan. There are those who say that uh, they are nothing alike. And and those are usually anti-Trumpers. And then there are those that say um, what Reagan spoke to in the 80s was important then, but not really the agenda the Republicans and the conservative movement need to go forward now. And that Reagan nostalgia is not helpful to the forward propelling of the movement. That sentiment usually comes from pro-Trumpers, by the way. And I'm not in either of those camps, to be quite frank with you. Um, let me let me work at, at at you backwards on this, and and I think we have discussed this before. Bill, please do not let me forget that other issue. Um, I I did, so don't let me do it again. <laughs> be my little Jiminy Cricket here. You know the issue I mean. The three things. Yeah, yeah. Differences between Reagan and Trump. Do they exist? Do they not? Um, and is Reaganism outdated uh, for the movement and that whole argument? Uh, the first position is held by never Trumpers. The second position is held by Trumpers, typically. And I just don't agree backing into it. When people tell me what it is they most liked about Donald Trump outside of the character, outside of the uh, spirit, outside of the – you know, the uh, the the – the vernacular and style, policy-wise, right? Because these are people who always say it's the policies, it's the policies. Policy-wise, what is it you liked about Trump so much? <clears throat> almost, almost everyone agrees Supreme Court nominees. Almost everyone agrees Amy Barrett and um, Amy Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh and uh, who am I? Who am I missing? I'm missing another. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Obviously, Neil Gorsuch. Thank you. Uh, uh, Okay, that would be a similar compliment 
and praise for Ronald Reagan reshaping the court with attempting to put Scalia there – excuse me, attempting to put Bork there, getting Scalia there uh, and, and, and making Rehnquist chief justice. Um, this, this is a typical thing. They're, they're, they're nominees to the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary. Um, another big one, obviously, it's so obvious it's it's um, it's almost it's almost uh, ridiculous to say it, but the massive tax cuts, which spurred the massive economic growth, in both cases, um, we love that about Donald Trump. Uh, third, obviously, the big one in Ronald Reagan was, as Margaret Thatcher said, winning the Cold War without firing a shot. We did have ISIS, which dominated uh, the upper uh, Levant and in, 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 into the east, and Donald Trump did crush that. And it's not quite equivalent to bringing the Soviet Union to its knees, uh, but when it comes to foreign policy, taking on China the way Ronald Reagan took on the Soviet Union and creating a peace process and plan in the Middle East that actually worked and was unique and different and a departure from all other Middle East plans, just as Ronald Reagan's diplomacy with the Soviet Union and bringing them down in its own inverse way was different from every other real politic plan, concept, and idea on how to deal with the Soviet Union. Reagan thought roll back, not accommodate. And he got that. So it's really foreign policy, judiciary, economics – the immigration issue is different now than it was then, and I think the comparisons are difficult. How about the cultural issues? How about the life issues? There were no two more pro-life presidents than Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. My point is this. I, I don't know if, if, if you do what in Latin is considered um, uh, the, necess- uh, uh, the necessary changes having uh, been made – if you think about um, if you think about the changing in the times, Soviet Union communism then, terrorism, China communism now, it's still a pushback against Americans' enemies. The notion of America being so unique and important, the notion of American greatness, also similarities, right? Also similarities. Um, so I don't, I don't think that you have to retire the agenda of the 80s to move forward um, into the aughts, mutatis mutandis, necessary changes having been made. I, I just don't see it that way. Nor do I think, given what I just said, Trump is that different from Ronald Reagan. Stylistically, to be sure, no question. Donald Trump is different from everyone. He's... Unique, probably, in his temperament and character to any president uh, in the last 40 years, 50 years maybe. But the other interesting aspect to all this, at least I think, is that when you look back at people the Republican Party esteems, Abraham Lincoln, Calvin Coolidge, Ronald Reagan, up until this very debate, no one ever said that we're still venerating 
Abraham Lincoln and Calvin Coolidge wanting to return necessarily to the exact and specific agendas and policies then. But what you do is you certainly take the civil rights lessons from Abraham Lincoln and maintain and adapt those to the lessons of today, just as you take the the greatness of America agenda from Ronald Reagan and the growth agenda and the constitutional uh, construction um, of originalism from Ronald Reagan and you apply that to today. I, I don't think the differences are that great. I don't think, in other words, that which constitutes mutatis mutandis, necessary changes, are that big. It turns out it may be most discernible when it comes to international economics, interestingly enough. Not something enough of the movement is well versed on but having to do with things like tariffs and having to do with things like uh, 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 protectionism of manufacturing. Differences there exist to be sure, but it's not night and day between Reagan and Trump so much as it is perhaps dusk and nighttime. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Guess what, Bill? Ha! I don't have a phone. <laughs> Sorry. Can you get me Tim in Scottsdale? Hi, Tim. How are you? Are you there, Tim? Tim? Yes? No? Maybe that's a problem of not having a phone. <laughs> All right, Tim, if you can hear me and perhaps you're on mute, uh, just uh, go ahead and uh, give us a buzz back. Um, coming up, by the way, is uh, Charles Kessler at the top of the next hour, uh, senior um, uh, fellow at the Claremont Institute, editor of the Claremont Review of Books. He has an amazingly great essay in the ver- brand spanking new issue of the Claremont Review of Books called Betting against america and uh, we'll talk to him bill did you want to tell us real quickly you said we have a running list we have a running list of lies is that what we did we have we call it the list of lies yes the list of great lies although i'm the keeper of the list refresh the the audience on what some of these lies are oh they range from the serious such as if you see something say something that's a lie people don't mean it the government doesn't to the frivolous, such as the act of tying the Windsor knot can be taught. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So we have a list. Give me one more serious so people understand that. Whoa. Never again. Yeah, never again is one of the huge lies. Of course, it uh, happens again and again and again and again and again and again. again. Uh, do we have another frivolous one? If you get two dogs, they'll just play with each other and leave you alone. Right, okay. Now, you want to propose three more topics to the lie list? Two more. One of them is – I'm going to submit this to you, see if you can word it better or if it belongs. It was inspired by Bill de Blasio when he said pretty unequivocally that Chris – the other guy, Governor Cuomo needs to resign. And I think I said something like, ooh, he must know something we don't or else he wouldn't go out on that limb. So since then, you know, Cuomo's still there. The dogs bark, but the caravan moves on. 
So I, I submit the they must know something we don't idea as one of the great lies. Maybe he doesn't know something we don't. Maybe we were right. To- you know, you know, you're on to something. You're on to something with that, Bill, because do you recall uh, during the first impeachment of Donald Trump, there was all this waiting till we have evidence, waiting Nancy Pelosi saying until we have impeachable evidence, until we have evidence. Do you remember that? And the first effort of that was the uh, – was the uh, 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 what, what's his name uh, the the FBI former FBI director report uh, the one after him uh, the old man uh, the guy who just, I can't remember it <laughs> thank you Bob Mueller man I'm having trouble today first thing was the Bob Mueller report which turned out to be nothing so Nancy Pelosi had to drag her feet. And we said, oh well then she knows something they got something when they finally went with impeachment they didn't you were right they don't know something we don't. You're right about that. The only thing they know is that the people they tell us are serious insiders who leak and are anonymous sources are not that serious of an insider. That's the only thing they know we don't. Good. We have other items we'll add later. Charles Kessler coming up.